Tonight we are going to start the book of Acts. We've been in the Old Testament now for a long time. So as we're going back into the New Testament, a couple of things to talk about for overview. One of the things that happens in the Messianic movement is people will call it the Brit Hadashah because they want to sound all official in Hebrew. And Brit Hadashah means either the New Covenant or the Renewed Covenant. And the New Testament is not the New Covenant. The New Testament is the new evidence. Testimony, when you give evidence, you give testimony. So the New Testament is the new evidence. And what it is, is the evidence that Yeshua was born and what he did and the fact that he fulfilled the prophecies and all that kind of stuff. So the New Testament is entirely evidence. It's not anything particularly new. In fact, even the New Covenant, which is only mentioned in the book of Hebrews, is simply a recitation of Jeremiah 31. So there's nothing new in the New Testament. It's simply the evidence that the Messiah was born, that he did the things that were predicted of the Messiah in, in the Torah and the prophets. And a lot of it, especially the letters of Paul, is Paul, who was a Jew, explaining Torah the Gentiles who have no frame of reference. So in the letters, you'll have some of them that are addressed to Hebrews. So the letter of the Hebrews and Peter's two letters are addressed to Hebrews. And they assume that the reader understands Torah, or at least is familiar with Torah. Paul had the Gentile franchise, and he had to assume that they didn't know anything. So what he was doing in his letters is he was explaining Torah 101 to Gentiles who had no concept of what was going on. But again, there isn't anything new in there. It is simply Torah and the Tanakh explained, evidence that the prophecies came to pass, that kind of thing. And of course the teachings of Yeshua. And Yeshua himself taught Torah. So as you spend time in the Messianic movement, you'll find people will call it the Brit Hadashah, and as I say, I think that's just an attempt to sound all official in Hebrew, but it is not the new or renewed covenant, it is simply the new evidence. I typically call it the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament, it's fine. So anyway, that's sort of thing one. Thing two is, of course, you all know that this is the second book of Luke. In the first book of Luke, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, and nobody really knows who Theophilus is or was, and he may in fact be a uh, non-existent person, because the word simply means God-lover, or lover of God. So, dear Theophilus, you know, dear lover of God, it could be to whom it may concern, to any believer out there, you know, that kind of thing. Or there could be some guy named Theophilus. Nobody knows. So both of his books start out with a salutation to Theophilus book one and book two. The other thing about the Gospels, of course you all know there's four books of the Gospels, there's five books of Torah. So you can look at the book of Acts as the fifth book, if you will. The four Gospels, if you will, the four books of the life of Yeshua are organized in the same way as the four living creatures that surround the throne room of God in Revelation and they are organized the same way as the cherubim that surround the Merkava, the heavenly chariot that Ezekiel sees. They're also organized the same way 
that the camp of Israel is organized around the tabernacle. All four of those things are structured exactly the same way. And the easiest way to see it is the creatures around the Merkaba or the creatures around the throne room in heaven. And what you have is a creature with the face of a lion, another one with the face of an ox, another one with the face of an eagle, and another one with the face of a man. So you have in the tabernacle in the wilderness, you have the tribe of Judah is the lion, you have Ephraim, who is the man. You have Joseph, who is the ox or the servant. And then you have Dan, who's the eagle. And in the New Testament, in the four books of the life of Yeshua, the book of Matthew, the emphasis there is he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Jewish Messiah. The book of Mark presents him as the servant, the suffering servant, an ox, if you will. The book of Luke, which is what we're doing here, presents him as a man. Luke is a physician. And so his humanity is the emphasis in the book of Luke. And of course, the book of John, which is the eagle, presents him as divine. He is God himself. So all of this is tightly structured. Now, as the four Gospels progress, the book of Matthew stops at the resurrection. So as you're reading the book of Matthew, it stops at the resurrection and the Great Commission. The book of Mark stops at the ascension. So you get the resurrection, the Great Commission, and then the ascension. The book of Luke stops with the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then you have the ascension. And then the book of John is the actual giving of the Holy Spirit, where in uh, John 20, 22, Yeshua breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit, but he also tells them to hang around in Jerusalem until they are endowed with power. So again, you have a progression, if you will, through the books. If you look back over the entire scriptures, you have in Christian theology, with which I agree, and not saying that as if I doubt it in any way, but in Christian theology, with which I agree, you have three persons in the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Old Testament, or the Tanakh, is sort of the book of the Father. He's center stage. He gets most of the ink. Now, both the Spirit and the Son make appearances, but they're little vignettes. You know, you'll see the angel of the Lord show up. You'll see the uh, captain of the Lord's host that shows up at Jericho. You'll see the Holy Spirit falling on Saul. So the Spirit and the Son do show up in the Tanakh, but they're vignettes. The major part of the ink, center stage, is the Father. In the four apostolic Gospels, center stage is the Son. And so the emphasis there is on the life and work of the Son in those four books. And again, both the Father and the Spirit make vignette appearances. So at the baptism of Yeshua, you have the voice of the Father that shows up from heaven and the Spirit lands on him like a dove. But the emphasis of those four books is the work and life and the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Son. Now we get into the fifth book, which is the book of Acts, and there the Spirit takes center stage. So the Spirit will now have center stage for the rest of the book. And both the Father and the Son, again, will make vignette appearances, but 
they're not the center of attention. The Spirit's the center of attention. So what I'm saying to you is the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are very tightly organized. This is not some random collection of writings that were put together by some crazy hermit somewhere. They are tightly organized from beginning to end, and they are consistent from beginning to end. So, for example, the four creatures around the throne and the four tribal groups around the Mishkan and the four Gospels are all the same metaphor. And it's absolutely consistent throughout the scriptures. With that, we are in the second book of Luke, also known as the Acts of the Apostles. So, Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Yeshua began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first thing, obviously, he refers back to what we know as the book of Luke as his first book. And the other thing that he is saying is that the resurrection of the Messiah is not in doubt. This isn't just something that was seen by 12 guys that have been hiding in a cave and came out of the cave and agreed on the story. He was seen by hundreds of people. He traveled around talking to people for 40 days and he was accessible. One of the things that he does back in the four books of the gospel is virtually every time he shows up, if they recognize him, they kind of freak because they think that he's a ghost. And so the first thing he does is he says, you guys got anything to eat? Because that is proof that he is not a spirit. That's proof that he is flesh and blood. And so one of his signature events is whenever he shows up at the end of the four Gospels, you guys got anything to eat? Come on, let's have breakfast. I got fish grilling here. That kind of stuff over and over again. What he's doing is he's reassuring everyone that this is not a ghost or an apparition of some guy that is dead and buried. This is, in fact, a living human being who they saw dead and buried and who has been raised from the dead, and it is the very same person. That's sort of key to all of Christian theology. And what Luke does is he hammers that home here. This guy, Yeshua, was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And oh, by the way, he walked among us for 40 days between the time he rose from the dead and now, when I'm writing this book. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There are branches of Christianity who make a big deal of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because what happens at the end of the book of John is Yeshua breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but if Yeshua personally breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, I think you're going to get the Holy Spirit. I think that's going to work. So they had the Holy Spirit for some period of time between the crucifixion and 
the imbuing with power that we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. And there are branches of Christianity that make a big deal of that. You have the receipt of the Holy Spirit, which allegedly you get at salvation. And then you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is when you start operating in the gifts and the power. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The idea is you're hanging around here in Jerusalem until such time as you get the Spirit. And until that time, don't worry about it. Don't worry about times or seasons. Just hang out. You'll get the power. And then what I expect you to do is go to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. And you're still not going to know when the end is going to be. He doesn't say that. I did. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Dumb question. This Yeshua who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the idea that you saw him ascend and you will then see him descend at some future time. Verse 12. When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Yeshua, and his brothers. So you've got a small crowd there, and it turns out it's about 120 people. We'll see that in the next paragraph. And they know Yeshua has raised from the dead. They know he's the Messiah. And what they're now doing is simply hanging out until they get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which this Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Yeshua. Judas guided those who arrested Yeshua, and he was foretold by David. Verse 17, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And that is from Psalm 69:25, And let another take his office, and that's from Psalm 109.8.21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Yeshua went in and out among us 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered among the eleven apostles. Lots of commentaries on this. There are those who are of the opinion that Paul was in fact the twelfth apostle. And sort of backing up for a minute, twelve of course is the number of tribes. So I am believing that they decided that they needed to have a twelfth because Yeshua himself chose twelve. And then when one of them, as was foretold, betrayed him, we need to replace that twelfth guy. Now, for those of you who are of the opinion that Paul is the twelfth apostle, and I'm quite sympathetic to that. I'm not saying that in any kind of a hostile way. If these guys stand up and say, all right, we got a bunch of people that have been with us ever since Yeshua was baptized, and they have been faithful, and they've come along with us, but they weren't one of the twelve that Yeshua himself chose. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick two of those and we're going to throw lots. And based on which one the lot falls on, that's going to be the twelfth guy. Well, the problem with that reasoning is the lot is going to fall on one of them no matter what. It's like flipping a coin. It's either going to land heads or tails. So heads at you, tails at you. They didn't give God a none of the above option. They simply said, these are the two guys that we're nominating. Now, God, you pick between them. And God said, okay, the two you gave me, that's the one I want. doesn't mean that that's the one that God chose to be the twelfth. And you can make a really good argument that when Yeshua knocked Paul off his ass on the road to Damascus, Yeshua himself made the choice of the twelfth disciple just as he made the choice of the first twelfth. And I am quite sympathetic to that argument. I don't know what practical importance it is, but if that's the way you think, God bless you. What Tom says is having 13 apostles is in fact consistent with the way the tribes of Israel are set up. Because when Jacob died, or before he died, he adopted Joseph's two sons as his own. So you then have Ephraim and Manasseh, and as you have lists of tribes in the Old Testament, what you wind up with is you have an alphabet of 14 of which 12 are used in any given list. So depending on what's going on in the list, you may have Joseph drop out and Levi drop out, and you then have Ephraim and Manasseh. Or you may have Levi in and Ephraim and Manasseh out and Joseph in. It's all the same group of people it's just a question of why you're counting them. So, for example, if you're counting people that are going to war, Levi doesn't count. But you still got 12 tribes because you then have Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? Chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Camp out here for a while. Have you all seen a Catholic bishop with his hat? What that hat represents is tongues of fire. You have the points and you have red on the inside and the idea that is that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit and that's a representation of the tongues of fire that fell on the apostles. It happens at Pentecost, which is Shavuot. Now, Yeshua is crucified, raises again on the third day, and then hangs out with them for another 40 days. So that's 43 days. And how many days are between the resurrection and Shavuot? 50. So Yeshua left them, ascended into heaven, 10 days before they received the Holy Spirit. As those of you who have been around for a long time, you all know that the Torah was given on Pentecost. That's when the Hebrew people show up at Mount Sinai and God speaks to them from the top of the mountain. And later on, they get the Ten Commandments and so forth. That also happens at Shavuot. And the way I like to describe it is God has given his people guidance. The way I describe it, is if you were to take a teenage kid that had never seen a football game and you didn't tell him the rules and you just said, all right, go out there, he's going to get run over and clobbered because he doesn't what the game is. He doesn't know what the rules are. He doesn't have any idea what's going on. So what God did to his people is he gave them a rule book. This is how my world works. And the written rule book is the Torah. And the good thing about the Torah is it's written down which means it doesn't change. I mean, it gets changed by translations and stuff like that, but the original Torah that you have that's written in Hebrew, I am reasonably confident is the same one that Moses wrote. Very comfortable with that. And that never changes. The problem is people change. So our languages change, our culture changes, all sorts of stuff changes. If you were to read the King James Version of the Bible as it was originally written, not the updated one that many of you have, there's a lot of stuff you wouldn't be able to understand because the language has drifted out from under you. So really good that it doesn't change, but it's really difficult that it doesn't change because it doesn't stay up to date. So what God does on Pentecost is he gives you a person who is also a guide. A coach. And so the Holy Spirit's job is to open the scriptures up to you so you can understand it from where you are in time and in space, as opposed to where the children of Israel were in time and space when they came out of Exodus. So in both cases, God has given his people guidance, and he does it on the same day to emphasize it. What's the first thing that happens when the Spirit lands on someone? They start prophesying. That's what happens clear back in the camp. Remember when Moses calls up the 70 to shift some of the governance off of his own shoulders and put it onto them? Eldad and Medad were among the 70. And they weren't with the main group. They were out in the camp. And lots of explanations of why that was. And when the spirit fell on the 70, Eldad and Medad started to prophesy. And the people around him freaked and went to Moses and said, make him stop. 
Now, the question that you should ask is how does one recognize when someone starts to prophesy? Because it was really obvious to everybody what was going on. Same thing happens to Saul. When the Holy Spirit lands on him, Saul begins to prophesy. How do we know that? So that's a sort of a signature characteristic of someone who has just received what a Pentecostal would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is they begin to prophesy. Now, most people's understanding of that today is they begin to speak in tongues. And there's controversy there all over the place. First off, there's a whole chunk of the body of Messiah that believes that that was then and this is now and it doesn't happen anymore. So you can go to Baptist, Presbyterian churches and they will tell you that was for then, this is now, and it doesn't happen anymore. And the fact that you don't prophesy when you get the Holy Spirit is nothing to worry about. That was a special deal at that time and that place. And oh, by the way, it also happens to the Romans when Peter goes to visit Cornelius. The Holy Spirit falls on them and everybody says, whoa, how did they get the Holy Spirit? We didn't think that was supposed to happen. So something obvious happens when the Holy Spirit lands on them there. Thing two, and you'll find people in this church, Brian and Ray being among them, who say speaking in tongues is speaking in some language that somebody else can understand, but you don't know that you understand. And I'll give you an example of that. My sister, when she got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, she started to speak in tongues. And sometime later, some woman came up to her in church and she says, do you know what you're saying? No, I have no idea what I'm saying. She says, you're praying in Hebrew and you are asking for angels to be around the walls of Jerusalem. Huh, I didn't know that. And she didn't know any Hebrew. She wasn't a Hebrew speaker. So the idea then that people start talking in languages of people around them who need to hear the gospel is absolutely scriptural. The other interpretation of speaking in tongues is it is a prayer language. And the idea in that case is God has made it a policy that he operates through people. So when God wants to do something, he operates through people. So if God wants something to happen, he needs a person to speak it out. Well, the thing about a prayer language is it allows the Holy Spirit to use your voice so a human being is speaking it out, but you're not hearing what you say so you don't get in the way because you don't know what you're saying. And in that interpretation, the Holy Spirit is simply using your voice because God needs a human voice to accomplish something that God wants to accomplish and you are allowing your voice to be used for that purpose. And just to sort of square the circle here, Speaking in tongues is entirely under the control of the one speaking. So I can decide whether or not I want to speak in tongues. And I can start and I can stop anytime I want. It does not take me over and make me keep speaking. It's simply I have chosen to let my voice be used by the Spirit and I've decided, okay, I'll let that happen right now. And I start speaking. Now what I say is not under my control. Whether I say anything or not is completely under my control. So if you find somebody that isn't under control, that's not God. That's an unclean spirit. So if you find somebody that's speaking in tongues and can't shut up, then you're not dealing with the spirit of God. You're dealing with some other spirit. Because God 
doesn't do that. The whole object of the exercise is he needs the cooperation of a human being in order to accomplish something that. He doesn't take you over. So, that's everything I know about the Holy Spirit. I do not understand the difference between Yeshua breathing on them and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I just don't understand that. So, I'm in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is one of the Feast of Ascent. Shavuot is a Feast of Ascent. So there would have been Jews from all over the world who had come up to Jerusalem for Shavuot. So now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, what sound? The sound that draws everybody in is the sound of a mighty rushing wind. That's the thing that gets everybody's attention. So they then come to see what that is, and then they find people speaking in their own languages. Verse 6, again. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How would you know that? I would imagine by the way they dressed. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. A couple of things going on. One is, if Tom was the one that was speaking in Latin, I as a Roman would understand it. But somebody from Phrygia, you would sound like you're drunk, because I don't understand Latin. Now I understand Tim, who's speaking in Phrygian. But to me, listening in Latin, Phrygian sounds like babbling. So you have this combination of, I got this one guy who's a Galilean who's speaking the gospel to me in a way I can clear. All the rest of these guys are like they're drunk because I don't understand them. Or it can also be, this is all within the Roman Empire. So it's sort of like lots and lots of people speak Greek. Lots and lots of people speak Latin. So I don't know that you need to have every language represented there. You just have to have enough languages so everybody understands. That's a guess. I'm trying to decide whether I want to go on. Because what we're going to do is we're going to go into a fairly long speech by Peter that's going to take more than the 10 minutes we have, I think. So I think maybe we'll stop here and we'll pick it up at uh, 2.14 next time. By the way, this is a replay of Sinai because you have God that comes down and the mountain top is flaming on fire so the idea of fire being on top is a recreation if you will of the events at Sinai in Jerusalem and it's obviously intended to be that please consider becoming a sponsor please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.